to our study of the book of Jeremiah. Uh, let me open our time together with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you are uh, faithful and true, and you are good and you are just. And in the passage we'll read today, uh, we will see uh, your faithfulness uh, to, your, to your word in executing your judgments on um, your sinful people. And Lord, as we read about the destruction and fall of Jerusalem, um, the fate of Zedekiah and Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech, um, help us to see uh, your faithfulness, um, that uh, just as we see uh, the, the words of the prophet Jeremiah come true uh, in this chapter, uh, we also see uh, how sad uh, this event uh, really was because it was avoidable. Uh, if the, the king had uh, responded to your word um, with faith and repentance instead of um, stubborn indolence, um, the city would not have been burned. The walls would not have been uh, torn down. Um, thousands of men and women and children would have kept their lives. Um, and yet, uh, like us, uh, stubborn, simple hearts uh, chose uh, wrongly. So help us to see our own uh, sinfulness and help us to turn in faith to our Savior, Jesus Christ, that uh, in him, we have your spirit, um, and we pray that, that that spirit would guide us and uh, be rooting, uh, mortifying the sin in our flesh. Um, teach us now, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. Um, instruct us in all things uh, true. Uh, may that spirit, uh, even as we are just joking, may that spirit uh, guide us into truth uh, rather than some uh, man-made app but uh, you're, you've given us uh, your spirit to instruct us. And so we pray that spirit would bless us this morning as we talk uh, with one another uh, over the words of this prophet um, who spoke to the people uh, thousands of years ago and yet still speaks to us today. Uh, teach us now, we pray, uh, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, so if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 39. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you um, what we, some of the things we talked about last week. So chapter 38 uh, continued Jeremiah's narration of Jerusalem's uh, last um, years before its destruction during the reign of Judah's final king, Zedekiah. We saw last week how Jeremiah was once again uh, viewed as a traitor. Uh, accused of treason and promoting internal strife and dissension. Uh, he, he's accused of these things for speaking God's word, that he who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence, but he goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. Um, Jeremiah's counsel we talked about last week was spiritual, not political in nature. And while he was accused of not seeking the welfare of this people, Indeed, Jeremiah's desire was for them to repent and obey God, for that was the only way they could escape their dire circumstances and keep their lives as a prize of war. Last week, we again noted the weakness of King Zedekiah, who bowed to the demands of those sinking Jeremiah's life. Um, uh, when King Zedekiah said, Behold, he's in your hands, for the king could do nothing against you, it was a declaration of his inability to stop them 
rather than an act of his sovereign will. Uh, we saw Jeremiah cast into the cisterns, sunk into the mud without food and water, left to experience a slow, certain death until he's saved. And ironically, as we talked a lot about last week, it was not someone from Judah. Uh, it was a foreigner, an Ethiopian official in the royal palace who demonstrated more trust in God's word uh, than the king, his officers, and the people. Ebeb Melech's action led to Jeremiah's rescue and to another secret meeting between Zedekiah and Jeremiah. Um, once more, Jeremiah pronounced God's words to the king. Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared and the city shall not be burned with fire and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. Uh, Zedekiah, we saw, was too captive to current circumstances, too afraid to what others might think, to trust in this promise of God. Rather than taking the counsel of the prophet, uh, he did nothing, letting events take their course, leading to his downfall. And it's his downfall and the destruction of Jerusalem that we turn to now in chapter 39. Um, just to let you know, the book of Jeremiah actually tells the story of Jerusalem's destruction twice. Uh, it does it here, and then it does it again in chapter 52. Uh, chapter 52 is the longer, more detailed description, um, and, and we'll see as we talk about it this morning. Uh, he's telling it here with a very particular purpose in mind, so he admits certain things that are important, um, but they're not important to the stories telling at this moment. Uh, they're important, and he'll tell them later uh, in the book. But here, um, we're focused a lot on the same characters we saw last week. Zedekiah, what's his fate? Jeremiah, what's his fate? Ebed-Melech, what's his fate? Um, and we'll, we also will see uh, this emphasis in this chapter on the... Um, that uh, God's words are coming true. Like He's telling history here. It's very matter of fact. He's not pausing for theological reflection, giving us moral commentary. He's telling us what, what's happened, but what's happened is coming in the context of what Jeremiah had been saying to this people for 40 years um, and what we've read uh, up to this point. So throughout this story, we know that God's words to and through Jeremiah have proven true, and that God remains faithful to his promises even in the midst and the chaos and destruction of Jerusalem. So here now, uh, the word of God from Jeremiah chapter 39. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate, Nergal, Sarazer, Samgar, Nebu, Sarsakim, the Rabsaris, Nergal, Sarazer, the, Rab, the Rabmog, with all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled going out of the city at night by the way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls, and they went toward the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. 
And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes, and the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him and look after him well, and do him no harm, and deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, and Nebuchadnezzar, the Rabsaris, and Nergalsar-Azer, the Rabmag, and all the chief officers of the king of Babylon sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard, they entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he lived among the people. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah when he was shut up in the court of the guard. Go and say to Emeg-Meleg, the Ethiopian, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May you bless it as we speak of it together this morning. All right, so... Uh, this is the event we've been waiting for um, way back in chapter one. Uh, in the introduction to Jeremiah, we were told um, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So we're, we're at that, that moment now, uh, the fall and destruction of Jerusalem. So what stands out to you in this account of the fall of the city of Jerusalem? Like what, what details um, in particular uh, do you seize on? Yeah, Dave. It's a good question. Um, and, and if you'll notice, like, what the huge difference between this telling of the fall of Jerusalem and Jeremiah's other telling in chapter 52, as well as um, the telling in 2 Kings, is the focus of those two chapters is all on the temple. Like, it's the, well, not all on the temple, but the temple takes up a, a huge section of, um, of the account in, in Jeremiah 52 and in 2 Kings. Like, it's at the centerpiece. Um, and, and we get details about Zedekiah and people being taken into captivity. That's there, too, but it adds all this stuff about the temple. 
here, it's the house of the people is, is possibly the only reference to the temple. So, so yeah, so some people do interpret it as the house of the people means the temple. And again, we do know the temple is destroyed. And again, we're, chapter 52, we're given a list of all the things that get carted off, like all the pieces that they're breaking up and you know this wagon train headed back to Babylon. All that's absent here. Um, so, so even if it is the temple, and it's kind of an oblique reference to it, and, and this narrative wants us to focus on everything other than the temple, I guess, is, is what I'm, uh, to, to answer your question, like, um, which is why it's not the temple of the Lord. Um, it's not, like, so it's the house of the people, and it is singular, so, um, so but other people do interpret it as, like, everybody's dwellings. Um, and excavations of Jerusalem have, have shown how complete the destruction at this time was. Like uh, every time they build something in Jerusalem, they find something <laughs> new. And they found like um, archeological evidence that just whole neighborhoods of people just get razed to the ground. So, so some people take it as just people's dwellings. Other people take it to the, as the temple. But, but I think what really gets at your question is the temple is, is largely absent from this telling of the fall of Jerusalem. And that's not true in, in Jeremiah's next telling of it, where the temple is at, at the center of the narrative. So, so it's a good, to, to answer your question with another question, yeah, why, what does that tell us that the temple is not the focus of this one? What does he want us to, to think about the fall of Jerusalem other than the temple right now. So, um, so to answer your question with another question, <laughs> like that tells us something. Yes? Yeah, and, and, it, uh, and again, um, like we can think of this, like we know God is directing all the things, and God, like the temple's strangely absent in this telling. God is, is absent. It's only at the end when we get the prophecy concerning Ebed-Melech, which is actually happens before the fall. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, you know, God's name is not, not mentioned in most of this, this chapter, but we know that he is directing things, and he ca has called Nebuchadnezzar his servant. So, um, and yeah, this act of mercy in the midst of it. Um, and lots of people are like, why? Um, why would the Babylonians do this? It's kind of like, all right, these are poor people who have nothing. They have no land of their own. Uh, they own nothing, and the Babylonians are giving them vineyards and fields. And so it's kind of like making them beholden to the, like, all right, we're, we're removing the people who caused us trouble, <laughs> and we're going to leave these people here who should be grateful to us for, for treating them so well. Um, so from a Babylonian perspective, it's kind of like, 
okay, we remove these people and then we put people who will um, be grateful to us and give them the land. Um, but to, to the other point, it's, it's um, the way God is at work through this is he's, it's the kings of, of Judah who ha have been um, charged with making sure the poor are taken care of. Um, and yet we've seen Jeremiah, part of his criticism of the kings and the rulers and the officials is they're taking advantage of the poor. They're abusing the poor. Um, we saw that moment um, earlier in the book where, oh, we'll free all our, our is, you know, fellow Israelite slaves, um, and then they don't. <laughs> like they're doing it, as, making this public show to like, uh, lift a siege and then the siege is lifted and they're like, oh yeah, forget about that. <laughs> you people are still our slaves. Um, so God is looking out for the welfare of this people and he, he has to do it using a foreign servant. Like a Babylonian is coming in and is, is treating the poor of Judah better than their, their own king. So that's, you know, there's, there's deep irony there that... Um, you know, again, you look in Deuteronomy, all these instructions about um, when you're in the land, this is how you should care for the poor. And, you know, they're ignoring, they've been ignoring all those instructions on how they're supposed to care for the poor. And here's someone, an outsider comes in, and as you say, in the midst of destruction, death, chaos, commit a merciful act as well as <laughs> horrendous acts and like the contrast there between what happens to Zedekiah's family with such brutality and, and this mercy that's shown to these poor people. Um, like it, the juxtaposition uh, there um, is really striking. And, and again, as it's, it sticks out, like here are these poor people who are ironically being cared for by foreigners rather than their own king. All right. So you're, and, and you're, you're, you're spot on. It's so matter of fact. Like we don't have to go through the like the theological. See, all of this was easily preventable, and if you had only listened, like we don't need a word from the Lord, as you said. It's Jeremiah's been saying this, and in the way chapters thirty-eight and thirty-nine, um, I think really intentionally mirror each other in a lot of ways. And, and notice those words from chapter thirty-eight. You know, it's once again, Jeremiah has this secret meeting with, with Zedekiah. And once again, he tells them the same thing. Obey now the voice of the Lord and what I say to you, and it shall be well with you, and your life shall be spared. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the vision which the Lord has shown to me. Behold, all the women left in the house of the king of Judah were being led out to the officials of the king of Babylon and were saying... You, your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you, and now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. All your sons and all your, 
your, all your wives and your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans, and you yourself shall not escape from their hand, but you shall be seized by the king of Babylon, and this city shall be burned with fire. So chapter 38, he's telling them what's going to happen. Chapter 39, he's telling us what happened. <laughs> like, you know, it's, he's saying, if you don't surrender, this is what's going to happen. He doesn't surrender, and, and as you say, just cold, hard, really sad description of those events coming to pass. What happens to Zedekiah's family? Like Jeremiah, like, <laughs> like we talked about last week. It's almost like, okay, if you're not going to you know, trust in, in what God is going to do for you, for yourself, think of your family. <laughs> you know, think of your, your wives. Think of your sons. Think of your, your children. And in this, he, he doesn't. Like he, he refuses to, to listen to Jeremiah. And then he witnesses those people being slaughtered before him. Um, and notice, the, you know, the purpose cruelty there. Like the last thing he sees on earth is the death of all his closest family. And he knows he's going to have no descendants because all his sons just got slaughtered before him. And then they put his eyes out. So it is so graphically horrible, but so avoidable. Um, is the way Jeremiah is presented. If he had listened in chapter 38, chapter 39 is avoided. Um, but he doesn't. And so we get the graphic unworking of, of the truth of what Jeremiah has been saying. And Jeremiah doesn't have to say, see, I told you so. <laughs> um, because he's just matter-of-factly telling us what comes to pass. And it's very, notice the specific, like, dates. Like, you know, we know exactly when it starts. We know exactly when it ends. Um, it's two years. And, again, the account in 52 talks a little more about, all right, think of, like, what, what happens to a city under siege. Like, you know, they run out of food. Um, they, you know, are running low on supplies. Like, I, um, I almost, I meant to grab it. Uh, on my way out this morning, but I forgot. Um, my uh, students in one of my classes, uh, we were reading this book called Broken Spears, which are uh, Nahuatl, which was the language of Mesoamerica, accounts of the um, Spanish invasion under Cortez. And Tenochtitlan, or Tenochtitlan, uh, the capital city, I mean, that I, I, there's a great, um, somebody has created this uh, great, like, 3D reproduction online of what it looked like based on descriptions. And it's like every Spaniard who saw Tenochtitlan was like, it's the most fabulous city we've ever seen. It was in the middle of a lake. It was like kind of like, it had canals as well as streets. Um, you know, these temples where they did hor horrendous things like sacrificing humans to, to their gods. Um, but because it's on a lake, it's really easy to besiege. Um, uh, Cortez actually dismantled ships, 
had them carried up. Like, and again, like Mexico City is, is super high, elevated, the valley, Central Valley of Mexico. Um, so he has these ships uh, carried, re reassemble, and they sail on the lake and like completely cut Tenochtitlan off. And, and then block by block, raise the city, tear buildings down to fill in the canals because uh, the Spaniards had earlier got caught in Tenochtitlan and barely made it out of their lives. Two thirds of the Spaniards were killed, everybody was wounded. Um, and so Cortez is like, I'm not gonna get caught. <laughs> you know, because all you had to do is like raise the drawbridges over the canals and they're stuck. And so the Spaniards had to like fight their way out. And so, so he fills in the canals, he destroys the entire city. And it just has this graphic description of what the suffering, um, the people were experiencing, like how they're starving. Um, uh, you know, disease is running rife um, in the city. There's a smallpox outbreak uh, during the siege. And it's, and, and famine, disease, these things often go hand in hand uh, in terms times of warfare. And chapter 52 tells us like, the food is gone and, and that's the moment that the Babylonians finally are able to breach the walls. So they've been holding out, fighting for two years. And imagine all the suffering, all the death um, that happened before the Babylonians take the city. Um, uh, yeah two years to hold out. They, they resisted uh, and continued to resist until the walls are breached and, and clearly at that moment it's over and, and Zedekiah and, and the remaining officials and army members try to escape and take off um, and they, they get caught. Other things that stand out to you? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good question. He doesn't tell us like, like we, we're not given any details. Well, how does Nebuchadnezzar know about Jeremiah? <laughs> um, we're like all those questions we have. Yeah, we, we, we're not told. Uh, but we're given it from like Jeremiah's like, because Jeremiah wasn't privileged to those backroom conversations between uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his officials, but he, he experienced, again, this act of mercy and what he's being told. And we're given more detail um, in chapter 40. We're going to come back and spend a lot of time on Jeremiah's, um, it, we're given a more detailed account um, of this uh, being rescued by Nebuzaradan uh, in chapter 40. Um, and in, in chapter, so next week we'll see the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, the Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said, because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice, this thing has come upon you. Now behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come and I will look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go ever where you think is good and right to go. If you remain, then return to Gedaliah. And then, you know, 
same details were given here. But in that chapter, it, it sounds like they're aware that he is a prophet who has been pronouncing these judgments against the city, and those judgments have come to pass, so it's out of respect for God's prophets. Um, other people have like speculated. It's because they've heard Jeremiah had a pro-Babylonian position that he's been telling the people to surrender, um, so they're looking favorably on that. Um, but to the, to the first part of what you said, it is God's, uh, again, continuing protection of Jeremiah. You know, he's kept him safe through the siege. Uh, he's kept him safe in the aftermath of the siege. And again, like, it, like read any account of like a city that's been besieged for a long period of time. And then what happens to the city once the invading force actually gets in. And it's, that's usually awful, you know. Uh, violence, rape, um, you know, complete chaos as, as people um, are fleeing these invaders coming into their city. So you can kind of imagine Jerusalem in that state. So in that chaos um, of, of post-city's um, fall, uh, Jeremiah is, is kept safe. Um, the other thing to note is the destruction of Jerusalem isn't like because of we see cities get eviscerated before our eyes through the um, mechanisms of modern warfare. When Jerusalem gets destroyed, it's systematic work. <laughs> um, you know, uh, again, they start destroying the city in the fifth month. Um, so they capture it in the fourth month, and at the next month, they're like, okay, what are we going to do with it? Let's burn it. Let's tear down the walls. Um, so, like again, in the longer accounts of the destruction of Jerusalem, there's this lag between the moment they breach the walls and then the moment they start to physically destroy the city. And there's a month in between the, the fall and then this methodical, all right, we're going to take down the walls, we're going to make this place uninhabitable, um, we're going to destroy this temple, um, all this like complete, we're going to cart off anything of value, and we'll see that in chapter 52. Um, in the midst of that methodical destruction, in the midst of the chaos that, that often accompanies um, a city when a siege uh, is finally succeeded and the invading force gets into it, Jeremiah is protected. Now he gets caught and he gets put in chains. Again, we'll see in chapter 40, the emphasis is that when, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar's official finds Jeremiah in chapter 40, he, he's in chains and he's with the captives who are ready to be taken off to, to Babylon. And um, so, you know, he, he's freed uh, from, from the same captive fate as everybody else is going to experience. And it's God using these Babylonians as the instrument of salvation for his prophet. And just to be clear also, God is going to judge the Babylonians later in this book, pronounce severe judgments, for everything they're doing. So even as they're a tool in God's hands and punishing his people, uh, God is going to punish them for the delight and glee and willingness to, to do these horrible things. Um, so, so they're going to be judged for, um, for what they, they do to God's people. 
uh, and it's, uh, again, Nebuchadnezzar is engaged in, 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 in symbolic warfare here. Um, why do you completely destroy this city? Um, why do you treat Zedekiah this way? This is what happens when you make a covenant with me and, and go back on it and rebel. Your city becomes a byword, <laughs> a, a hissing. It becomes a pile of rubble that people pass by and look at and say, that's what happens when you rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. Like, it's a visible sign, like... Yeah, they, they, it, it's one of those things like, again, like um, you, you get descriptions of uh, like, uh, um, we're, we're talking about Jamestown in one of my classes and uh, the early settlers who are starving um, go and burn Indians' cornfields down because they're in warfare with them and it's sort of like, well, <laughs> my students were like, that seems really dumb. <laughs> Like, they're starving, wouldn't they want the corn, take the corn? And it's like, no, no, it's like, you've got two people who can't communicate with one another, so, you know, you, you, you want the act of, to show your superiority, to show, like, that we mean business, so you do these symbolic things. Um, the natives were engaged in the same thing. Um, when they killed Englishmen who come out to raid their villages, they were stuffing their mouths full of corn. Like, again, symbolically saying, you want it? Come get it. <laughs> uh, we'll give you some corn. <laughs> we'll give you more, more than you want. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar's engaged in that kind of, again, symbolic. Like, yeah, I'm sure the city would have been useful to him, but he, it's more useful for the messaging. This, again, this is what happens when you, when you rebel, when you make a covenant uh, with the Babylonians. Um, Ezekiel um, describes this uh, in Ezekiel 17. Then the word of the Lord came to me, say to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to him in Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. So it's not just Jeremiah um, who has this message. This is what happens when you break a covenant that you've made with, with, with another king, the covenant you've made with God. Consequences will happen. Jeremiah, yeah, like, 
there have been people gone, like we have descriptions here, people who've gone out to them. Um, so yeah, they have pretty good knowledge of what's going on this, in the city. And they have knowledge of even, um, you know, when, when Zedekiah and his force sneak out uh, at night, um, they, they know that and, and manage to, to track them down. So um, yeah, his officials, and, and notice Nebuchadnezzar is up, like, why go down to Jerusalem? I'm gonna stay up in Ribla. <laughs> it's much nicer. <laughs> um, it's, it's a more strategic position. You guys go wipe out Jerusalem for me. I'm gonna hang out uh, here. And then uh, it's to Ribla where they bring Zedekiah and his, his family um, to, to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is the one who passes sentence on him. Um, yeah, what, what about, um, so let me give you a couple, of, lots of people in, when talking about Zedekiah um, uh, look back at some of the things that Jeremiah had said. So in both chapter 32 and chapter 34, Jeremiah prophesied, Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hands of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. The eye to eye there is the part that <laughs> kind of sticks out. Um, yeah, so what, what, do we, what do we make of Zedekiah's fate? Um, what, in light of what Jeremiah had prophesied to him? Um, yeah, we, we've talked a lot about Zedekiah um, in the last several weeks, um, yeah, what, what do we what do we say about him here at this sad moment? Yeah, Dave. Yeah, and, and notice like all this destruction is the result of, of his decisions. Like if he had listened to Jeremiah, the city doesn't get burned. Um, the, the people get to keep their lives as, as the bounty of war. Um, and so he, he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't lead in that moment. Um, and, and it's the irony again Jeremiah is the one accused of not having the welfare of the people, um, you know, that he, he, he's looking for evil to happen to the people, and he's not. He's like, no, this is the only way people get to keep their lives is if you surrender. And Zedekiah does not surrender, and so lots of people lose their lives, uh, including Zedekiah's family. Um, and so the, the contrast um, between what could have been and what took place because he refused, again, to repent and exercise faith in, in, in Jeremiah and the words that God has spoken to Jeremiah. Uh, over and over again, Jeremiah's come to him. He keeps inquiring, what does the Lord say? <laughs> and Jeremiah tells him, and then he's like, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> um, and he's, he's more afraid, as you say, of his, his counselors, what they're gonna think, um, the people around him. Um, 
And then, you know, the moment he sees it's over, he takes off. <laughs> like, he tries, like, he's, again, he sees what happens because of his choices, and yet he's still trying to, he's more worried about protecting himself than, you know, the, the fate of his people. Um, and it goes back to the irony that this foreign invading power has more concern for the poor people of the land of Judah than their, their, their king who takes off in the middle of the night when he sees the writings on the wall that he can't win. Um, so, well, that, that self-preservation instinct kicks in again. Yeah, right. No, he gets taken off into Babylon and presumably dies in, in peace. But before that, <laughs> um, he, and he's got a lot of time to, to reflect on, on um, all, like think about it, like he, he's alive, he's blind, and he's got the rest of his life to, to think about God's words to him. Like, so if you, you know, like, again, we don't have Zedekiah's inner thoughts. But you can imagine, like, everything that Jeremiah said, he has seen it come to pass, including the deaths of his family. Um, he, he sees it, um, and then it's the last thing he ever sees in his life. But he continues to live. Um, so, you know, the, the contemplations of Zedekiah you, one can only imagine um, how he's reflect. Like if anybody's ever had an opportunity to to know God's word is true, Zedekiah is it. Like he's had it pronounced to him over and over again. He wouldn't listen. He wouldn't listen. He wouldn't listen. And then it happens, and he knows everything that Jeremiah said has come to pass. So when we get to the end of the book, um, the book actually ends with Jehoiakim. Um, so it's talking about, um, or Jehoconiah, as he's, or Coniah. He's got lots of, goes by lots of names. Um, but Jehoiakim is released from prison in the 37th year of the exile. Um, so he's the one that um, every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king according to his daily need until the day of his death as long as he lived. Um, and if you look at, uh, again, kind of thinking, it's kind of random <laughs> that that's how the book ends, like this mention of this other king who, if you recall, wasn't king for very long. <laughs> this is the guy who got uh, replaced by Nebuchadnezzar and Zedekiah put on the throne, so he had a very short reign. Um, why, why end the book with him? He's the one um, who is in Jesus' family tree. So if you think about, you know, sort of like why this emphasis on preserving that king's life, it's Jeconiah 
is in uh, the genealogy of Matthew. Uh, Jeconiah is, is in the line that Jesus comes from. No, we, and again, all we know is he gets taken off in the blind and into captivity. We don't know his fate, right? Um, we, we, but we know, yeah, and, and to Ronnie's uh, uh, question earlier, we know what happens to the guy he replaced. <laughs> we don't know what happens to him, and we don't know, like, yeah, does he ever, does he ever repent? We don't have it here. That's, that's not point, the point of the story. The point of the story here is, you know, again, to think how chapters 38 and 39 are, you know, are pieced together um, and why he's not taking the time here to do what happens in, at the end of 2 Kings or to do what he's going to do in chapter 52, go into the temple and, like, what happens to all the things in the temple. Like, he, he really um, is later is going to talk about that. that. That's not important here because what he's focused on here are the people. Uh, he's focused on what happens to Zedekiah, we're given Zedekiah's fate. What happens to Jeremiah, we're given Jeremiah's fate. Um, the one person we haven't talked about, and we should in our last five minutes. Uh, so he, he, he breaks the chronology. Like, so, you know, he's kind of been giving us a chronological account, and then he goes back to this moment when, when Jeremiah was still imprisoned in the courtyard of the guard, while the siege is going on. And he gives us this prophecy um, about Ebed-Melech. Um, so why? Why you know, interrupt his, his storytelling about the fall of Jerusalem to go back to repeat, or to, to, to go back in, in, to Ebed-Melech and to present this prophecy here? Notice it's not history, he's not telling us and this is what happened to Ebed-Melech. He's giving us the prophecy of what God said while the siege is going on, what happens to Ebed-Melech. So, so why do that? What, what, what's the point of putting this little uh, section about Ebed-Melech here? Out of order. I'm a historian. I like things in order. <laughs> Jeremiah's a filmmaker. He moves things around for his thematic purposes, like, you know, to, to paint a certain scene. Yes? Um, how foolish that is um, because 
He was afraid. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. It goes back to this earlier prophecy concerning this guy, um, you know, to, to end the, or, you know, end our chapter, the story's going to keep going on, but to, like, as a point of emphasis, like, we're going to bring, like, yes, it happened way earlier, but this scene epitomizes, as, as you say, what God was looking for. Um, Zedekiah fled um, rather than trusted and obeyed. He feared men, and his fear of men led to inaction. Um, Ebed-Melech, he was afraid. Like, you know, he, he knew that Jeremiah was not popular, so standing up for, for Jeremiah was, was, could, could have consequences for him. But he trusted the Lord. And, and, and we talked a lot about this last week, the, the irony here, that it's this foreigner, as chapter 38 emphasized, Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian. Um, it's, but yet, here you have um, this Gentile man who trusts in the Lord, though he's afraid, acts on God's prophet's behalf, um, and, and God says, I will save you. Like, and, and notice the language there. It, it's, you know, we can look at it from a, um, you know, uh, the physical truth, I'll, I'll save you from the destruction. I'll spare your life. But it is salvific language. Um, for I will surely save you. You shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war because you put your trust in me, declares the Lord. Like, so he has ex he's done the thing that Jeremiah has been calling on kings and officials to do over and over again. Turn from your sin. Turn to your Lord. Um, Repent and, and, and trust in me. Um, and, and he does it, and he, his life is spared. So, again, as you think about 38 and 39, how they fit together, like, all right, we have Zedekiah, who doesn't listen. We see what happens to him. We see Jeremiah, who, uh, once again, God is saving his life, saves him from <laughs> the people in Jerusalem, saves him from the people outside Jerusalem. Um, just as God had promised uh, at the beginning, I will put a wall of bronze around you. Like Nobody's going to be able to touch your life. And so we see Jeremiah during the siege, after the siege, God is protecting him. And we see Ebed-Melech, um, who uh, we saw last week acting to save God's prophet. And here we're seeing, even though, again, coming, the prophecy came before the actions. It's not giving the his history of what happened to Ebed-Melech. It's giving us God's word because he wants us to know um, at this point, and this is the point where, like I said, God's name hasn't shown up in this chapter until we get to Ebed-Melech, and we see the intentionality of God preserving his, his faithful people through this moment in, in Ebed-Melech is even though he's an Ethiopian, a Gentile, a foreigner, God preserves his life um, and, and is letting us know that it is because Ebed-Melech, though he was afraid, trusted in God um, and, and, and acted based on that faith.
and in the way, like again, as we think about it, like it, I think it's helpful to think of it, like I was kind of joking earlier, but it is helpful to kind of think of it in a, a movie and, and movie directors like go back to like, so rather than telling the story of what happened to Eve, like he goes back to before. Um, so he's giving a description of in that day and we're kind of given a flashback scene of God saying in that day, your life will be spared. So like, you know, he, he's going back and, um, and the emphasis is in that day. Um, and in that day is we know um, the prophets use that to describe um, both immediate events, uh, proximate events, but also the ultimate um, judgment. So you can think of it that both ways. He's delivered in that day of Jerusalem's fall, God saves him. And in that day of ultimate judgment, God saves him. Um, so we can kind of think the proximate is giving us a picture of the, the overall redemptive arc um, of, of God's people. And, and just as God is preserving Ebed-Melech's life um, in the moment of Jerusalem's destruction, it's also a promise that he, he is redeemed, he is saved. Um, and this is another one of those examples we have of God saving Gentiles in the Old Testament as well as the New. All right, well, we're at time, so let me close this prayer. So we'll continue with this next week. Uh, we'll get a more um, detailed description of Jeremiah, the circumstances around Jeremiah's uh, release, and we get uh, a picture uh, of what's happening in Judah uh, after the siege. So uh, that's preview for next week, but let's pray. Gracious God, we, we do thank you for... Um, your good news, your, your gospel, and um, even as we see that gospel uh, presented in, in this message concerning Ebed-Melech, um, that uh, even in the midst of destruction, um, when God is fulfilling his words about um, punishing the, the city and its inhabitants for their rebellion, for their um, breaking of the covenant with him, uh, that we see uh, your remembering your word of promise uh, to save, to deliver um, those who trust in you, like Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech, and later on, uh, as we'll see, uh, Baruch. Um, we see how you're faithful uh, to your word um, and call us to, to act on faith, uh, even when we're afraid, um, even when it has negative consequences, but to, to trust in you, um, to help us, Lord, because uh, it's, not, it's not in our nature, but help us uh, to, to put our fear of you um, above all things um, and to fear the one, not just the one who can kill the body, but fears the one who holds body and soul. Um, and so help us uh, to trust in you um, to believe in you, uh, to repent of our sins, but to turn to you in faith and trust, um, and to, to trust uh, that you are working all things uh, for the good of your people as you've promised, um, because you see us uh, through the redemptive work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, help us now in this coming hour to worship him, um, uh, even as we've seen um, the grisly fate 
that our sin deserves. Um, help us to use that grisly portrait to, to speak of the greatness of salvation that we've received at the hands of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his work on our behalf, that we too, who were doomed for eternal destruction, have been given eternal life because of him. Help us to worship uh, in spirit and truth our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.